You are listening to sermons from the Ignite Leadership Conference 08. Ignite is a gathering for young leaders purposed for kingdom building and lasting conversations to take place. For more information, visit www.igniteleadership.org. Session 2, Stoke, Developing Yourself as a Leader, featuring Jay Reisner from Faith Bible Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. Clearly the coolest uh, intro I've ever received, right there. Definitely. Everybody's well rested, I assume, so we can dive right in. Uh, Keep going this morning. I had the privilege of going home, sleeping in my own bed, being with my family a little bit. I live about 30 minutes from here, which is both good and bad. You have the privilege of being close to home, but then you're kind of pulled in two different directions. You're not really as all in on this weekend as maybe you'd like to be, and that coupled with the fact that... uh, my wife's literally nine months pregnant. Um, you know, if my phone rings, I'm out, guys. If, if, if I get a call, uh, Jeff will just kind of pick up from, from where I leave off. So, But cool, it's, it's good to be here. Thank you, thank you for letting me come and do this. It's always a privilege to go and to speak anywhere to anyone, but it's an even greater privilege, I think, to be invited back to speak uh, to people. Um, Casey, Jeff, and Scott, uh, they're sort of the, uh, the Peter, James, and John of Ignite, sort of the inner core, the inner circle. Uh, they're the ones that sort of establish the themes and the goings-on of, of this weekend every year. I just sort of show up and, and do what they tell me to do, uh, which is nice. Um, but it's been cool to watch this weekend sort of evolve. Growing out of the retreat cabin, it's just right over here. I think there was, you know, 10 or 15 guys. Maybe I think there was one girl that year. Uh, that was awkward, of course, for her. And then, uh, but that year, the theme was just really, just really essential foundational stuff. Uh, and then last year, as we came back, the, the squad grew a little bit. And in last year, the, the subject matter, if you, if you were here, was real just emotional passions in your heart and, and that, sort of, that sort of subject matter. And then this year, as this has evolved a little bit more, production quality is up, pretty cool stuff there. And then uh, this year is just really practical, really practical and applicable stuff to your ministry. So really the sort of the head, heart, and hands sort of thing has, has been going on as Ignite continues to grow and uh, kind of come into its own. But the task that I've been given uh, this morning is to talk about developing yourself as a leader. Developing yourself as a leader. I first want us to look, though, that uh, I want us to look at the being a leader is being a shepherd. Those two words can be synonymous, leader and shepherd. Leaders, they, they can lead teams or, or organizations or Fortune 500s. Uh, but we, we are called to something very different from that, right? We are shepherds. We're very much leaders. I would never diminish that fact. But we're something also very different than simply, than simply leaders. And, and if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know that there's just a rich 
shepherd metaphor that just runs itself through the narrative of Scripture. The Old Testament is really replete with this idea of shepherding. And we start with Adam in Genesis um, 1 and 2. Adam's sort of the first shepherd, right? God gives him this garden to tend and to look after. And these animals, this whole creation to sort of name and, and, and that it's all under his care as the first man. He's this sort of first shepherd. You move forward in Genesis, you get to about Genesis 30. Uh, Jacob is there, uh, and he receives this great herd from his father-in-law Laban. Remember that? And, and, and he and his 12 sons, uh, the sons that he has with Laban's daughters, Leah and Rachel, they move out of that land of Haran back down into Canaan. And what do they become? They become shepherds. They are herders. That's what they do. The conspiracy with Joseph's coat, if you remember that, his brother's beating him up, selling him off. You know, what did they do? They killed one of their flock, and they, you know, smeared the blood over his coat and convinced Jacob that, that he, he had been slaughtered. They were shepherds. Move forward a little bit more, you get to Moses. Moses leaves Egypt to do what? Leaves Egypt to be a shepherd. And then God appears to him and calls him back out, and he says, Moses, you need to be the guy that shepherds my people out of captivity, right? And you need to shepherd them into the land. So, you know, for 38 years, Moses led these people through the wilderness. He was their, he was their shepherd. Continue to move on, you get to, to David. Obviously, before Samuel anoints David as king, what is he? He's a shepherd boy. And we have these psalms that he, that he, that he writes that are just full of shepherd language You know, the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He shall lead me by still waters, guard me in pastures. We fast forward to the time of the prophets, and at that time, really, the spiritual leaders of Israel were just pathetic. They were just awful people. And the the nation was spiraling downward, and they had given themselves to idolatry and perversion and all sorts of things, and the prophets come along, and what is their repeated call? You guys, you people, you guys are like sheep without a shepherd. And then you move forward a little further, you get to the New Testament, Jesus comes along, and what's he say of himself? There's seven I am statements in the book of John, I am the bread of life, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I'm the resurrection and the life, but there's one there in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd. I'm not a good shepherd. I'm not one among many good shepherds. I am the good shepherd. That's what Jesus says of himself. I'm the good shepherd because I lay down my life for the sheep. The sheep know my voice when I call out to them. He even tells a parable. He says, there's a lost sheep. I will leave the 99 and I will go and I will find that lost sheep. Then there's the reinstatement of Peter there at the end of the Gospels. He's sitting there by Lake or the Sea of Galilee, I guess. Jesus shows up, and after Peter has just fallen incredibly after denying Christ three times, Christ reinstates him to the ministry, and he gives him this charge. Just as Timothy was given a charge by Paul, he's given this charge by Christ himself, and the charge is what? Peter, feed my sheep. Be a shepherd to my people. Tend them, feed them, look after them. 
And then at the end of all things, there's this separation described at the judgment seat of Christ, right? And what happens at that point? There's a separation where you have the sheep, those who have been shepherded into the kingdom, and then you have the goats, those who are part of that rebel kingdom of Satan. So to think biblically about leadership, I think that we must think about ourselves as shepherds. The English Bible would also call us pastors. Those are very much synonymous terms. We're just not simply leaders, right? I think that's very important to to remember this weekend. So how do we develop ourselves as the shepherds that we're we're called to be? Um, Before I get to that, I want to cover something else. Um, And and what I want to cover is what, really, what I think this talk could very well turn into. Um, Perhaps more than all of the other workshops this weekend or the sessions this weekend, this one could maybe lend itself to being sort of a how-to session. Uh, And I think that would be bad for a couple of reasons. Um, I I don't really know how to tell you how to develop your leadership. Uh, I think because each of us really should develop differently. We're all very different. You don't have to look around uh, to, to, to come to a great realization of that. All you have to do is kind of look at the guy next to you. You know, look at Rafe. I'm different from Rafe. Have you figured that out? But I love Rafe. He's one of my favorite people in the world. Um, we're just very different. We all lead different. You know, it took in, taking Scott's exercise last night, I'm directional, motivational, uh, element of shepherding in there as far as those categories he'd laid out for us. Some of you are, you know, motivational, entrepreneurial, or, or what, are all, what are all the uh, uh, other ones? I don't know if you figured that out. But our development then will be different, right? Some of you just need to be in ministry. You need to fail in ministry. You need to be mentored by, by godly men or godly women. And some of you need to go off and you need to spend time in graduate school or seminary and really just sort of be encouraged and, and, and grow in the knowledge of the truth. Some of you need to get out there and be in a place where you're just serving all the time. Uh, We all just need different things as far as development goes. I don't think I could just give you a formula, sort of this how-to method, and just say sick them and and develop your leadership. The other thing that makes sort of that a bad idea, me to just sort of give you this how-to talk, is that how-to talks, I think, tend to leave out a really key developmental component. You ever been to a Christian bookstore? We've all been to the Christian bookstore, right? Love the Christian bookstore. I could spend hours in the Christian bookstore. For good or bad, I could spend hours in the Christian bookstore. But Christian bookstore, right there next to the potpourri and the ceramic figurines, you have just shelf after shelf after shelf of, of in the book section of how-to books, right? Just how to be a better you, how to be a better dad, how to, be, how to have a better marriage, how to be a better pastor, how to just be awesome, or whatever it is you need to be, you can find it there at the Christian bookstore. And my problem isn't necessarily with what those books are calling people to, because it's good to be a better you, and it's good to be a better dad, and it's good to be a better husband, and it's good to be just more awesome than you already are. But um, my problem with those books, those how-to manuals, they're just filling the Christian bookstore, is that they assume the gospel. And I think that's really dangerous. They assume the gospel. 
and I had a good friend tell me one time that an assumed gospel is an untransforming gospel. For us to really change, for us to really develop, I think we need to be subjected continually to a proclaimed, robust, stated, understood gospel. It is absolutely essential in our transformation. Jake Phelps had a question. How do what I how do I take what I learned this weekend and transform Oklahoma City with it? Well, the answer is start with the gospel and move on from there. Agree with the gospel. Let its truth come to bear in every area of your life. Really, really believe the gospel. That's the key. It cannot be assumed because the point is believing the gospel. Taking the good news of Jesus Christ, and rather than just taking it as advice, rather than just adding it to sort of a list of self-help mechanisms, actually responding to it with the consistency and complete surrender that the gospel demands. And it does. It demands consistency. If you remember in Galatians 2, Paul rebukes the apostle Peter. He says, Peter is due condemnation. And why is Peter due condemnation? Because some Jews had come into the area some Jewish Christians, and Peter had been loving the Gentiles, he had been preaching to the Gentiles, he had been eating with the Gentiles, and and these these old Jewish friends kind of show up on the scene, and what did Peter do? He kind of reverted back to his old pattern of life. And Paul rebukes him, and he says, Peter, you are not living in line with the truth of the gospel. Your life is inconsistent, it is not straightforward, you're a hypocrite, Peter. I don't know if you really believe the gospel. He's trying to get Peter to, to take the gospel and to see it and to make it come to bear and come in line with every area of his life. It must be applied to every area of thinking, feeling, relating, working, and behaving. Its applications and its implications are just so vast for us. And they're vast because the gospel is vast. The gospel is necessarily the news that Christ died for us. It is that. I think we understand that. There are some in our day that would say otherwise, but but I think we can agree on that. Christ died for us. He died on the cross so that I would not have to die. He died in my place, in my stead. But the cross also means that Christ died to crush the enemies of Satan, sin, and death. He's He's our victor. He died to deliver me from my old life. He's Redeemer. Christ died to pay my spiritual debt. He's Ransom. Died to cleanse my filth and make no mistake. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm filthy. He died to make me legally righteous before God. He's Justifier. He died to give me his very righteousness because I am not upright. He died to endure the wrath of God as my propitiation my new covenant sacrifice because the blood of bulls and goats simply would not do. He died as an example to us of what it means to truly suffer and truly live. And we could just go on and on and on this morning. This gospel of ours is vast. It is, it is robust. Therefore, its implications concerning who we are and, and, and how we live are, are vast and they're, they're really robust. So let's just point out, I just want to point out a couple of implications about the gospel before moving, moving on, okay? Gospel implications, and then we'll move on to, 
some leadership development. Because again, I don't want to assume the gospel. I don't want to just move to how-tos. Right? Implication one is the power of the gospel. Paul shows us that bringing the gospel truth to bear on every area of life is the way to really be changed by the power of God. The gospel is described in the, in, in the Bible as really really in some amazing ways and, and using some astounding terms. 1 Peter 1.12 says that the angels long to look into the gospel continually. 1 Corinthians says in, in chapter 9 that it is the blessing of God with benefits to anyone who would draw near to it. It's seen as the very light of the glory of God itself in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. The gospel seen as the life of God in Corinthians is, as Paul says, I give you birth through the gospel. And then after this regeneration and this life-giving birth, it is the instrument of all spiritual growth. Colossians 1, 6, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and it is growing. And in conjunction with all these things, it's also something sort of ultimate, something else. And that is, it is powerful. In fact, it is the very power of God. Paul says in <clears throat> Romans 1.16 that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the very power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the power of God that saves. It's the power of God that renews us renewing power channeled through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When was the last time you thought about that? That God's power has been uniquely displayed in each of our lives. And that is so clear to me because we are just messed up people without it. We're dysfunctional and perverse, self-centered, completely twisted in our understanding of who God is and how we need to relate to him. But the gospel's power, it actually changes all of that. And it changes all of that to such an extent that then we get to be people that lead others back to God, that shepherd others into that transforming gospel. We get to be used so that God's power can move and change others. Just more on this power, I think it can be seen in the scriptures in a few different ways as it's sort of brought to bear in our lives Um, a great model of that is 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. If you remember in, that, in those couple of chapters, Paul wants the people there in Corinth to give an offering. And not just any offering, but an offering to the poor. He says, he says to them, I, you know, I don't want to order you guys to do this. I don't want this offering to simply be a response to my demand. He's not coercive. He doesn't put pressure directly on their will. He doesn't say... You know, guys, I'm an apostle. This is your duty to me to give this offering. He doesn't put pressure on their emotions. He doesn't say, you know, these people are really, really poor. Look how much you have compared to to what they have. He doesn't try to guilt them in any form or fashion. And, And instead, he says this. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you might become rich through his poverty. When he says, you know the grace, I think he's using a really powerful tactic to get at these people. He's bringing salvation to bear, the gospel to bear in the area of money and wealth 
and poverty. And he does it, again, not through coercion, not through arm twisting, but he does it by giving them this spiritual reminder of the gospel. He's saying, you know, think on his costly grace. Think on that grace until you are changed into generous people by the gospel in your heart. So the solution to stinginess, sort of the power out of selfishness, is us being reoriented to the generosity of Christ in the gospel, where he poured out his wealth for us. And he made us rich. So rich that we don't have to worry about money anymore, because the cross proves God's care for us. Or it gives us security that, that money couldn't ever provide. So much so that we don't even have to envy anybody else's money because Jesus' love and his salvation gives to us a a, a remarkable status, a status that money could never give us. So the gospel, right then and there, in an area like money, Paul uses it to change the hearts of the people. There are other examples of this. Ephesians 5, probably being a good one, You know, Ephesians 5, Paul's urging husbands to be faithful to their wives. And what's the point he makes? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what then makes you a faithful spouse? It's not sort of redoubled effort to be faithful. It's deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ. Really dwelling on what Christ did for the church and giving himself up for her. And then that is what leads you to a place to say, honey, my life for yours. My desires for your desires. It changes your heart in dynamic, powerful ways. The gospel is powerful, not in the way, uh, not in the way your truck is powerful, not in the way Jeff's calves are powerful. You know, the gospel is not like that. <laughs> Nothing on earth really has the power to change you. The gospel, though, is powerful. You will not be a changed person without the gospel. It holds the power to develop you into a godly shepherd, into a godly leader. Not necessarily this conference, not necessarily another conference you're going to, but the gospel. So the power of the gospel, that's implication one. It's the power that changes you. changes your life so that you'll come into agreement with what Christ has accomplished at the cross, so that you'll live in line with it for his glory and your joy second implication is the sufficiency of the gospel um i want to contend that we would that that we never really get beyond the gospel in our christian life we don't graduate to something more advanced the gospel is not sort of the abcs of christianity that we just start out with it's actually the a to z of christianity it's not the minimum required doctrine necessary to get into the kingdom, but it's really what gives us all progress in the kingdom. I think it's really common in the church to think like this, to think the gospel, you know, it's for non-Christians. One needs it to, to be saved, but once you're saved, you sort of just grow through hard work and, and obedience and discipline. And though we'd agree that we work out our faith the hard work that is not arising from a heart that seeks to be in line with the gospel will not sanctify you. You guys have lived there. You've been there. It'll exhaust you. It'll wear you out. The gospel is, 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 is established itself as sufficient to save. 
It needs not our self-effort or our our self-discipline to be applied. Now, it may generate a great deal of self-effort and a great deal of discipline. I would say it necessarily does that. But it doesn't need that to be applied. When Paul left the Ephesians, and he, left more, he spent more time in the Ephesian church than he did anywhere else, some, something like three or so years there at Ephesus. When he left them, you might remember, he committed them to something. He says, I commit you to the word of his grace, which can build you up. He said that in Acts 20. I commit you to the word of grace, which can build you up. And what does that mean? It means what Christ has taught them concerning the gospel is essential to their growth and development. It is, it is all-encompassing regarding their growth and development. It is the key component. It cannot be assumed in their growth and development. So as we think about gospel power and gospel sufficiency, I think the main problem then in the Christian life is that we fail to think through and through the deep implications of the gospel. We have not used the gospel in and on all parts of our life. Luther says this. He says, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, that we teach it to others, and then, as only Luther could say, that we beat it into their heads continually. He actually said that as a a commentary on Galatians 2.14 about living in line with the gospel. This is why Paul says that the gospel only does its renewing work in us as we understand it in all its truth. The key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal, the key to weekends like this, to development as leaders and particularly as shepherds, is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. Seasons of renewal renewal are always the discovery of a new implication or a new application of the truth of the gospel, seeing more of its truth. I think that's true in either an individual or in the life of a church. So gospel theologizing, sort of been doing that here this morning or tend to be the type that wants to not take down your theology books or read through some of the hard stuff of doctrine. It isn't just mental exercise. It isn't just understanding doctrinal differences and terminology. It's essential training in living out what you believe. Our actions flow from our systems of belief. And the richer your understanding of what you've actually been saved from to what you've been saved to will profoundly impact what you do with the great gift that you've been given. Because here's the reality. And Tim Keller says this very simply and very beautifully. He says, you are more sinful and flawed than you could ever believe, and you are more accepted and loved than you could ever hope. So that takes a long time, a lifetime to understand the fullness of those two realities, that you are far worse than you think you are, but that you are far more loved than you could ever imagine. So you take that and you import it into what we're doing about leadership and and, and thinking about this realm of leadership. You import that into this conversation 
we start talking about leaders who are shepherding people into true life change because they're working with more than tools and curriculum and strategies. They're working with the power of God itself. Working with the gospel. Steve Childers, he's a guy who leads a, a church planning movement called Global Church Advancement. <clears throat> Speaking about leadership, he says, most churches make the mistake of selecting as leaders the confident, the competent, and the successful. But what you most need in a leader is someone who's been broken by the knowledge of his or her sin and even greater knowledge of Jesus' costly grace. The number one leaders in every church ought to be the people who repent the most fully without excuses, the most easily without bitterness, the most publicly and the most joyfully. They know their standing isn't based on their performance. They know their standing isn't based upon their appearance. It's based upon the finished work of Christ in them. That's the gospel. Do you remember what Paul continually referred to himself as? Let me give you a hint. A clay pot. An earthen vessel. If you go to 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7, he says, we hold this treasure. And what's the treasure that he holds? We hold this treasure in earthen vessels. Speaking of himself, I'm an earthen vessel. The the Corinthians came against Paul because he was not a good-looking guy. He, he was not a man of real articulate speech. Before Paul came to faith in Christ, before he was literally knocked over by the grace of God, all he had going for him was his religious life. It was his keeping of the law and the persecution of those uh, Galileans who bucked against it. So people are coming against him saying, hey, you're not qualified. You can't. You know, who, who are you? You... you you're not good looking, you don't speak well, you're abrasive. And, and, and Paul says, it's really not about me. I don't boast in myself. I boast only in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just an earthen vessel. I'm just a clay pot. What I have here, it, 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 it's an offering to God. It's a sweet fragrance to him. I'm just ordinary, everyday, useful clay pot. So as you develop as a leader, you, I, I think you know what you need to be asking. You need to be asking, how can I be a better clay pot? Not how do I move from clay pot to, to crystal vase. <laughs> you know, we know those really polished, sort of good-looking, well-spoken, just really sharp leaders. You know, we go to their conferences and we read their books Sort of set them up high on the shelf, you know. How can I get there? Man, they're so attractive in their leadership. That's really not the right question. Not how do I get from clay pot to crystal vase or from, from, from terracotta to, to fine china, right? What do you do with the china that you get at your wedding? Nothing. Nothing. I've been married uh, 10 years. I'm in my 11th year year of marriage. It sits in a cabinet. We have never used it. Literally never. 
We just moved uh, about three months ago. And the stuff that wasn't in our cabinet was in box after box after box. And I'm going, we've moved three times, and I've moved these exact same boxes. These things are worthless. <laughs> what are we doing? With We're going to give it to our children when we die. That's about all it's for. But these are pretty utilitarian, right? You see these in every home, in every garden. You can scuff them up, you can chip them, and they're still useful. You can beat them up a little bit. Sure, they'll break, but if you've ever broken one of these, you know that they're pretty easy to put back together again. Here's eight things. I'm going to close with eight things, all right? This is the how-to portion, sort of. Eight things you need to know as you develop more fully your ideas about leadership. I think these principles will shepherd your leadership development. All right? Number one is a biblical view of success. What is success? Success is faithfully pleasing God with all the resources and responsibilities he's given you. There's not an equation in there about numbers or salary or or what you're running. We leave those results up to God. We find joy in who we are in him and not what we do for him. I think the parable of the talents is an excellent illustration of this. The reward was not for those who produced the most. The reward was for those who simply used what they had. And the truth is, if we seek success in ministry, if you seek success, you will sacrifice others on the very altar of that success. Mainly your family, that will come first. And then you'll start to sacrifice those who work alongside of you. And you'll be one of those leaders who just leaves wounded people behind them all the way. So a biblical view of success needs to shepherd your development as a leader. Number two, managing your time versus managing your life. I'll give you a second to write that down. This is not just prioritizing your schedule, but actually scheduling your priorities. Everybody's heard the term, the tyranny of the urgent, right? What needs to be done now really crowds out the things that are important. I have lived in the tyranny of the urgent in the last three weeks. I confessed this to Jeff on Monday night. It was a miserable few weeks for me. There were just things that that I did not prioritize well, did not manage my life well. And so the whole world just sort of imploded in in the span of about two or three weeks because I had so much to do. And this happens, especially when you start out in ministry, you work a lot right? You're not managing your time well. There's always more to be done. There's someone else to please. There's a program to generate, an idea to get moving on. There's this idea that you need to validate your calling and your gifts, and you need to validate your salary, you know, this sort of thing that's always looming, so you create more activity. And and, and really, that's just all pride. It's all an exalted sense of self-importance, which is pride. And that's the thing that just drives workaholism in pastors, I think. A man advised me once, he says, have one hour a day with your family. Not just an hour a day with them, 
but an hour totally unplugged, no media, no cell phone, you know, no internet, no TV, just you and your family. In addition, have one full day a week with your family it, with the same sort of surroundings, just sort of unplugged, connected to them. And then once a month, have two days in a row with them. And then a minimum of, of two weeks a year. He would contend that it takes at least three days to get away from the stress of a job and really be on vacation. These are words that I'm really I'm kind of preaching to myself at this point. And that, that advice is really important. One, because it, it invests in your family. <clears throat> but it reminds you that things go on without you. That ministry doesn't rise and fall with your direct involvement. That you are, just like a clay pot, utterly, dis- utterly dispensable. The, the church moved through 2,000 years of history without you, and you are not mission critical. There's actually one guy that's mission critical. The rest of us really pretty much aren't. And he was Jesus. So managing your time versus managing your life. Third thing, understand the difference between goals and desires. Goals and desires. Goals are things that are in your control. Desires are things that are outside of your control. So what's that tell us? Work hard on your goals. Be a goal setter. That's fine. Work hard on them. But what do you do with your desires? Pray hard. Pray hard for your desires. Goals would include, you know, daily Bible reading, prayer for yourself, with your wife and your kids, prayer for your church, just doing that consistently. That's a great goal. In your, sort of in your grasp, grasp to be able to do that. An example of a desire would be, I, w- I want 10 conversions in the upcoming year in my ministry. Right? You're not in control of that. You just, that's just a desire. But you could set up some goals related to that. You know, we're going to do an evangelistic training workshop. We're going to pray daily toward 10 conversions. We're going to knock on 500 doors in our community just to get to know the people. There's some goals you can set to sort of maybe see those desires actualized, but you know those desires really aren't in your power to attain. Understand the difference between goals and, and desires. That's key in sort of shepherding your development as a leader. The fourth thing, understanding that God is a father and not just a general and a master. Not just something we take orders from, just not yes sir, no sir. He's a father. Galatians 4 speaks to this powerfully, I think. Verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The greatest work of the spirit in our lives is not to lead us into leadership development. The greatest work of the Spirit in our lives is to lead us to such a close, intimate relationship with God 
that it compels us to call him daddy. That may be too, taint, too tender of a language for you. You may not really, that may not resonate with you, calling God daddy. You don't even refer to your own earthly dad that way. You just can't really go there. Let me tell you right now, the Holy Spirit wants to, wants to take you there. I have a baby boy on the way, nine days. I also have twin girls who are three. <clears throat> now, when they started calling me daddy, or dada, or whatever it was that was first out of their mouth, you know what it did? It proved to me that they knew who I was. Our relationship, when they started calling me dad, it was confirmed. You know, I, I was just some other guy they smiled at and laughed at and that changed their diaper or maybe took care of them. But when they called me daddy... The intimacy was established. You know, the wife, she carries the baby for nine months or however long. They have this connection, this intimacy. You know, the dad's just sort of like doing tricks until they pay attention to you, right? I mean, that's what you do. Man, when those words come out of their mouth, that intimacy is, is it's, it's established. It's there. And in that, I think I realize why God wants us to see him as father. If when you picture God, you picture him as father, as perfect father, as, as daddy, you see him exactly as he desires to be seen. You confirm your relationship with him. To call him daddy, to know him that way is what he wants. And in doing that, the mission of Jesus is also confirmed. Which the mission of Jesus, which was, which was this, to bring us into real, intimate fellowship with God. The cross was, was not what God did just to get us home to heaven, but to bring us into the kind of relationship that Jesus has with God, that of a father. Know God as father. As I've, as I've come into fatherhood more and more, as I <clears throat> have reflected upon it more and more, I lost my dad last year. This idea of, of, of the blessing of a father and, and being a loving father and knowing a loving father. It's just, it's just consumed me. And it's probably been the mo- one of the most healthy things in my development as a leader. Bill Bright, toward the end of his life, just months before he died, <clears throat> he was speaking to a group of students at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. And he said, I wish someone had told me that God is not just useful, he is beautiful. He is beautiful. Number five, The way up is the way down. These are principles guiding, shepherding your leadership development. The way up is the way down. This is just the paradox of grace, right? God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He shows strength primarily through human weakness. So in light of that, we are not to hold our weaknesses in disdain because you know what? Most of us are completely ordinary people. And ordinary people have weaknesses. Abraham Lincoln said about ordinary people, he said, God must have loved ordinary people for he made so many of them. John the Baptist said it well, he must increase, I must decrease. A lot of you are from the Free Will Baptist Church background, man, you guys have a powerful ordinance that more churches need to engage in, that of foot washing. And it sets this principle in stone in your church. The way up is not the way up. 
The way up is the way down. Serving people. Number six, people or programs? People or programs? And I have eight, so we're, we're getting close to being finished. It's, it's hard to lead programs. Those of you that have done youth ministry for any period of time, you know that that's hard. But it's harder to love people. And you know what? The latter is, is, is more vital. Remember Jesus' conversation with Peter? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. He didn't tell Peter how to program the day of Pentecost for maximum, maximum effectiveness. There's no instruction about an evangelistic campaign or, or whatever. His charge was to take care of people. Don't sacrifice that. In five or ten years, when you look back at your time in youth ministry, you will not look back fondly upon the programs that you put together. You really won't even remember what really goes into them. The cool videos you put together and just the seamless transitions that are in place and the curriculum that you used, you won't remember anything about it. That you remember changed lives, you remember kids you discipled, you you will remember students that get it and continue to get it and are serving in the kingdom. People are programs. Number seven, process living versus product living. The joy and happiness from the process lasts much longer and can be much more satisfying over the duration of your life. Because disappointment is always cast in the form of failed objectives. I'm so disappointed because we aren't running 100 students. Who cares? Enjoy the students that you have and enjoy the process of getting to that point. Right? Oftentimes we just can't be happy until we've accomplished X. Joy in process lasts longer than joy in the product. Most of life is process. You talk to any coach that, is, that has been a part of a championship team, and it's not winning the title that they loved. It's the season. It's that process. It's just going to battle every day with these guys or girls. And just the ups and the downs and, and just the joy in that process. Alexander the Great after he conquered the known world, you know what he did? He wept. And he didn't weep out of joy. He wept because he had nothing then to do. Preparing for battle and destruction and victory, that was his, that was his high, that was his opiate. That's what was, he loved it. So he conquers the world, and he just, his life goes to shambles, and he's a wreck of a man. He was kind of a wreck of a man anyway, but. A guy named Isaac Rubin says this, and this is very much in agreement with the Eric Liddell quote that Scotty shared. He says, if you're doing something you enjoy, which gives you satisfaction, the doing is more important than the accomplishment. Elizabeth Elliot says, don't let your living for tomorrow slay your living for today. Her husband, Jim Elliot, has one of my favorite quotations Wherever you are, be all there. Don't look beyond. Process living versus product living. And then number eight, make the main thing the main thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You can only do that in complete surrender and submission to the gospel, of course. 
But the main thing is not the ministry. Let me say that again. The main thing is not the ministry. And I would even contend that a lot of times the ministry will get in the way of the main thing. You know why God loves the world? Because there's people in the world. So the main thing is the people that God has put under your shepherding care and their understanding of the grace of Jesus, their understanding of the gospel. That's the main thing. I ran across uh, <clears throat> this Spurgeon quote. And reading books by dead guys was sort of key in my development and continues to be key in my development. In your book, there's no, in your little pamphlet, there's no books by any dead people, um, which they're all living, which are they're good books, but read some books written by guys that um, are dead, like real dead, like three, 400 years old. Um, <clears throat> That was just real key for me as, as I grew as a leader. And one of those dead guys I really liked was Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, 19th century preacher in England, Park Street Church in Westminster Chapel. And I ran across this quote from him this week, and it doesn't tie in that well, this quote doesn't, but it was so good that I couldn't bring it. I mean, I couldn't not bring it. I had to bring it and share it because um, it's just so good. <clears throat> it is about ministry. He says, I know that. Whenever God chooses a man for the ministry and means to make him useful, if that man hopes to have an easy life of it, he will be the most disappointed mortal in the world. Now, mind you, we can't get away with speaking like Spurgeon did. I mean, he just had a way with words that we, people would look at us like we're foolish if we tried. But he will be the most disappointed mortal in the world. From the day when God calls him to be one of his captains and says to him, See, I have made thee to be a leader of the hosts of Israel. He, being the man, must accept all that his commission includes, even if that involves a sevenfold measure of abuse, misrepresentation, and slander. We need greater soul exercise than any of our flock, or else we shall not keep ahead of them. We shall not be able to teach others unless God thus teaches us. We must have fellowship with Christ in suffering as well as fellowship in faith. Still, with all its drawbacks, it is a blessed service. And we would not retire from it. Did we not accept all this with our commission? Then we should be cowards and deserters if we were to turn back. These castings down of the Spirit are part of our calling. If you are to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ, you must endure hardness. You will have to lie in the trenches, sometimes with a bullet lodged here or there, with a saber cut on your forehead, or an arm or a leg shot away. Where there is war, there must be wounds, and there must be war where there is to be victory. That's what we're called to. What I did, um, I don't know if you need a pencil holder for your desk, but in, a, in that big uh, flower pot over there, there's, I don't know, 30 or 40 of these clay pots. <clears throat> Take one with you. Uh, you know, you can write verses on it, or you, know, you can use it for what it's intended for, a clay pot, but put it on your desk, and you put your pencils in it. Just let it be a reminder on those days when you know 
you have nothing to offer. You couldn't be more right. <laughs> because the gospel, the gospel is delivered in empty clay pot. So take that with you and let that shepherd and develop you as, as a leader. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for these men and women that they have surrendered themselves to the greatest vocation in the world, which is the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that um, you would fill them with just a robust, vast understanding of the truth of the gospel. That it's not something that they would drive by, but it's something, God, that they would park in and they would not move away from and they would draw others to it and then through it the power unto salvation would be revealed and their churches would be changed and their lives would be changed and their communities would be changed. And through them, what happens in the world uh, is an utter revival because of gospel centrality. So Lord, develop us as leaders, grow us in grace and truth. Draw us near to the very person who embodied grace and truth, your Son, Jesus Christ. Work the Spirit in our lives that we can call you Daddy. We can draw very near to your heart and be intimate with you as we compel others to do the same. Lord, thank you that we can be clay pots, humble, sturdy, useful, ordinary, just men and women. Um, but with the most powerful message in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand with me?